I hope I make the point in Becoming Maria that it's not only overcoming a difficult childhood to succeed, but it's incorporating the difficult childhood to succeed. I never forgot who I was and what I came from when I was on Sesame Street. I always assumed some kid was out there who needed a moment of peace and tranquility and order. (laughs) And there I was speaking to them from an environment that they recognized. Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, actress and writer Sonia Manzano is with us. You may know Sonia as Maria from Sesame Street, a role that she played from 1971 until 2015. She recently wrote a memoir about her childhood in the Bronx. It's called, fittingly, Becoming Maria. We're also joined by Andrea Davis-Pinckney. Andrea herself is a renowned children's book author and also an editor of children's books here at Scholastic. Andrea served as the editor for the late, great Walter Dean Myers. She also worked with Sonia on her new memoir. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Nice to be here. Yes, on this snowy day. Um, Okay, Sonia, for starters, could you tell our listeners why you decided to write a memoir and describe the family in which you grew up? Well, first of all, I was very inspired by Frank McCourt's Angela's Ashes. A more miserable childhood could not have been written about, (laughs) yet he was able to write it with humor and compassion. And I thought, wait a second, I had those things in my (laughs) life when I was growing up, misery and a lot of humor. And the delicate balance that he created in that book was inspiring to me. And I thought, Uh, I'm going to try to do the same thing. Now, his parents were, you might say, uh, a little on the incompetent side. I think that would be putting it mildly. (laughs) Where my parents were, I mean, they, but my parents were worse. They were violent, or my father was violent, not my mother. And, And as you know, there was domestic violence going on in the, in the household. And, uh, but still, there were, moments of humor and and uh, uh, moments of great love and, and, and moments of great um, moral correctness in that insanity. And I think therein lies the rub, therein lies the interest that two things could be going on at the same time. It's interesting you say that. I loved that book and thought it was hilarious and gave me great insight. Angela's Ashes. I loved your book too, but insight into my Irish heritage. I understood the Irish much better than I did reading James Joyce. You know, it really brought it to life. But my older brother, he could not read that book. It was too upsetting to him. Angela's Ashes. Oh, He thought it was just too painful all of the misery, but he made it so funny. Right. Well, we all bring our own hearts <laughs> yeah. to whatever we right, read. And right. I used to get up early so I could have my private time with Frank McCourt and his book. And one time it, it was so funny. I was having coffee by myself and I guffawed and coffee shut out of my nose. <laughs> <laughs> now that's hard to make the reader do something as extraordinary as that. That was impressive Absolutely. To me. Well, you have some characters in your book here too, which we'll get to in a moment. But also, why don't you tell us a little bit about the neighborhood in which you grew up? 
Well, it was a poor neighborhood. It was a tenement neighborhood, 3858 Third Avenue to be exact, but it was a vibrant neighborhood. There were a lot of people there. It was a tenement building with four floors and uh, four apartments on each floor, and everyone knew each other. Any parent, any adult could correct you, and you would do whatever that adult said because they all knew each other or they would tell your mother. The Third Avenue L was still up. It went right by my fourth floor window. And it was like, I want to say, like a river runs through it. Uh It it, it came in every 20 minutes, uh, flushing the neighborhood, I felt, with new people, new ideas. You know, it was clanging. It made a lot of noise. It was pretty fabulous. the the Third Avenue well is uh, not there anymore because right. Robert Moses cut through those poor neighborhoods in the Bronx, destroying them forever. And uh, and now you can't get in or out, which I think is what makes a ghetto. But that's another uh-huh. story because uh-huh. their people uh-huh. are trapped in the in the yeah. in the neighborhood. But at that time, you could leave on the train, and uh, and everybody knew each other, and life revolved around the. Bodega downstairs, oh, yes. where everybody <laughs> met the grocery store. Yeah, and was it Don Joe? Don Joe, you, yeah. Don Joe. <laughs> and, yeah. What was he like? <laughs> he was this. I thought he was the warmest, uh, a kindest man. Like he always looked exactly the same. He was big, and he had a bloody apron. And and then the, the funny guy though was his brother Don Tito, who who smiled so quickly at you that it was like a tick. <laughs> <laughs> and who was the one? One of them wasn't vigilant about collecting money. I forget which one of the oh, brothers. Oh, I think it, I, it was uh, uh, Don, uh, Don Tito, the one with that was, had the, the tick <laughs> smile. Right, right. It's like, I mean, everybody everybody bought on credit. Yes, and, uh, yes. You know, yeah. they would just add your a new debt to your old debt. I, I don't remember anybody ever paying anything. I was anything. thinking, I'm sure how they did they did. manage? <laughs> I know. Yeah, um, interesting. And, you know, Andrea, you, feel free to jump in here at sure. any point and talk yes. about— I'm loving hearing Sonia. <laughs> <laughs> As do we all. Um, but just in the—how you two started collaborating on the book at the outset or what that was like. Mm-hmm. Well, let me say I'm, I'm one of those people who grew up watching Sonia— on Sesame Street, like all of us, and in the Macy's Day Parade and, you know, seeing her all those years in my living room on television. And uh, Sonia's first novel for Scholastic is called The Revolution of Evelyn Serrano. Yes, yes. And I love to still see the reactions of people when they read that novel. It is about a girl coming of age uh, during the 19, late 60s and 70s uh, and uh, the activist group of uh, the Young Lords. And when I brought that manuscript in-house, folks were saying, I know these people. I can smell this neighborhood. Uh, I've seen these people. I understand this. Uh, I'm I'm right there. And uh, it was at that point I said to Sonia because it's loosely autobiographical. Uh-huh. And I said, "Let's hear the real story." You know, oh, I, I want to hear the yes. the uh, Maria on Sesame Street that Brilliant. many of us don't know. And I know that Sonia had endeavored to write her memoir for quite uh-huh. a while. And I thought this is the moment. People have read almost the pre-story in the Revolution of Evelyn Serrano. And now, let's oh, let's really tell the yeah. story now. That's interesting yeah. you say that because a lot of people insisted that Evelyn Serrano was a, a true story, not a work of fiction, mm-hmm. because right. they felt, well, it is you, isn't it? I mean, it is you, and it is, yeah. and it in is. many respects. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, but that's always hard to distinguish fiction and fact, right? Well, I think that 
you know, even when I wrote for Sesame Street, it was really me. Even if it was Ernie and Bert bits, it was <laughs> something that came from my heart. Right, so right. that's why they seem uh, real. Uh, you know, the events in Evelyn Serrano and, of course, the events in Becoming Maria are real. But the events that I wrote for Ernie and Bert were also real really? and from my life. Imagine children having you to grow up with when you had no lifeline like that. Well, I think that's what's... Uh, I think it's really interesting at this point in my life that I realized that I became what I myself needed to see on television when I was a kid, uh, as I say over and over again. People are going to say, that woman has to get some new stories. She keeps saying the same thing. But I do keep saying that. I watch a lot of television. Father knows best, Lady to Beaver. Yes. And there was no one um, that represented me. And people would say, what are you going to do when you grow up? You say, I, you, you didn't know because you didn't see any of jobs that you yes. could have yes. in society. So you didn't know what you were going to contribute to a society that, uh, that didn't see you. But still, I found things in that very white television that, that I forced that had something to do with me. I had a favorite uncle, Uncle Eddie, so I'd watch uh, Father Knows Best and I'd say to my mother, Robert Young looks just like Uncle Eddie, doesn't he? He's just <laughs> like Uncle Eddie. Yeah, sure he is. Yeah, right. And I'd say, David Niven, he looks, his curly hair, just like Uncle Eddie. And she'd say, yeah, he is. I mean, she liked her brother, too. So, you know, I feel uh, I found things to keep me going. I was yes. just watching a Stephen Hawkins movie, and they, there's a line in it where Stephen Hawkins says— uh, where there's hope, there's life. And I think maybe that's why. I just made a, some little hopeful uh, moment, connection. You must have had such a spark inside you to keep going through so many tough, tough times and, and being, you know, smacked down in every way, whether it was in school or in the neighborhood or at home. And, and just to know that there was something within you trying to get out there so desperately. Uh, so many kids got smacked down. I mean, everybody yeah. starts out with a, a, a huge sense of enthusiasm and winning, and uh -huh. then it gets smacked down by society or their parents, and then it just depends how strong you are. But I, I you know, even my mother would always say, she had a saying, if it doesn't turn out one way, it's going to turn out with the other. I mean, she insisted on this relationship with my father. I mean, that's very bullheaded. She was going to fix this guy. Right, right, right. <laughs> However, you he hear about your mother's story in childhood, and it's a wonder she made it out. Yes, and she said, she said to me once, she said, I saw my sister uh, cooking with the uh, fogong, you know, in the, the, the oven was outside, and they're, they're actually cooking by burning wood. And she said, I was not going to be that way. And she set her sights on New York. So, so even she, because, you know, I wanted to make this distinction from being in that oppressed society of Puerto Rico of the 1940s. And just tell a little bit about her own family and the tragedy that he, she had within her own family as a young child. Oh, my goodness. She was born in the most interesting of times. Uh, uh, there were five children. She was born in 1921. The Great Depression was upon us in the United States. So you could imagine what it was like in a, you know, in this 
insignificant island at that time that was a territory of the United States that nobody cared about. And there was a huge hurricane that hit, a memorable hurricane, San Felipe, that hit the island. So, And then her mother died yeah. and left five orphans. She was five years old, and they were uh, like indentured servants. Right. She used to tell me these stories, and it was like, oh, my gosh, it's like uh, Charles Dickens. Makes Oliver Twist <laughs> yeah, sound like yeah. a walk in the park. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, they would say, her father would say, give her away and say, just to other families and say, she'll just stay here and do a little cooking for you, you know, and, you know, just feed her whatever. My uncle says to me when he was 80 years old, he said, he said, we were like dogs. <clears throat> and if somebody gave us food, we'd hang around. Oh, my. I mean, it's oh unspeakable. My. This was happening. Yes. Uh Let's see, she came to the States. This was happening in the 30s when the Depression was in the United States. And, all, and then finally after she was grown up, World War II happened. There was a lot of work in the States. And uh, this is all this history I did uh, for Evelyn Serrano, the history <laughs> right, of Puerto right, Rico. All, so then she, they came to the States to find their way. But even she showed a lot of moxie. <laughs> Moxie's the word. <laughs> Moxie, yeah. if I'm using that word correctly. And I think you that are. that's part you of, are. you know, how universal these stories are. You know, we all come yes. from families, whether they're wonderful or not wonderful. And I think that what Sonia has done so successfully is kind of just woven that thread of resilience that we all, you know, aspire to or don't have and want. Uh -huh. And I think also, you know, what you mentioned, Sonia, this idea about humor that successful line of sprinkling humor yes. amongst such tragic circumstances. Yes. And again, absolutely. the kind of resilience that comes out of that. Yeah. A humor really is. Yeah. My mother was funny. She, <laughs> she, had, she, she was a great mimic. <laughs> she, really, she really was. Oh, yeah. my goodness. And she worked downtown, right? She worked at a time when women did not, most, yes. most of the women stayed home and she— not only did she work in a factory, she was she drove. She insisted upon learning how to drive. My goodness. Women did not learn how to drive in those days. And she insisted on being a member of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. She was like, she was like Anita in West Side Story. Get the washing machine, <laughs> you know. She, you know, finally I, I connected with my father after many years of uh, being estranged. And, uh... He said she insisted that I join the a union. He didn't want to. He was afraid. He he would oh, not yeah. have been a part of the system if she hadn't goaded him and said, "Yes, you have to. You have to." I forget what union it was for 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 construction workers, but she was the one who, oh my in the midst of all of this, goaded him to. You know, yes, you have to pay dues. Yes, it's painful to pay dues, but you have to do it. We're here. <laughs> Gosh. So bringing up your father, let you know, talk a little bit about his violence and his troubles and also his music. Uh, I think that my father, now that I'm an adult, I look back and I think that he was a, a, a blackout drunk. I don't think he honestly remembered what happened. Right. Now, this was in the times when domestic violence wasn't uh, a slogan. Uh -huh. It wasn't on everybody's mind, right. and alcoholism wasn't on everybody's mind. I never thought that he was an alcoholic. I didn't know what he was. It was yeah. just this. I thought everybody had this in their family. Right. Uh, I'll never know what demons uh, 
tormented him. Mm-hmm. Clearly, some did. Um, I, though I asked him point blank, he was not the kind of person who could reflect and stand outside of himself and say, you know. So that that was interesting to me. And then also on the other hand, there was a lot of music in my house. Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, Christmas Eve, baby. Yes, and there was a lot of guitar playing. Yes. And uh, uh, I thought all Puerto Ricans could sing and play the guitar. (laughs) (laughs) And had a sense of rhythm. Right, right. And, uh, And I loved that. Uh-huh. aspect of my uncles and my father. And my mother had a beautiful voice. Uh, so therein, again, lies the rub. And that makes a good story. When a character is yeah. in conflict in the middle, it's like, how could I love his music but hate this part? I think for kids, they would prefer to see the world black and white. Yes. There's good guys and bad guys. Fair and unfair. Fair and unfair. But around... 14, you start understanding that that's not the case. And I was always in that middle yeah. of, lo- of loving and, and, and being in despair and, you know, wanting my, the warmth of, how could I want the warmth of her hands when she insists upon being in this situation? Yeah, yeah, with your mother. Well, say what you will about Father knows best. He couldn't play the guitar. Right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Your dad had something on him. And you know, the other thing too is I'll just say that what Sonia, again, has done so brilliantly is, you know, it's that expression, whatever, real life is stranger than fiction or more colorful. You couldn't have made this up, this story. The characters are so well drawn. The scenes, it, you know, it reads like fiction, but you're like, no, this was, this is Sonia's real life. Which I love. And that brings us, Sonia, I'd love for you to read an excerpt about some of these wild characters who... The crazy characters in my neighborhood on 3rd Avenue. Well, as I I used to look out the window and watch all the neighborhood people doing whatever they did. (laughs) From there, I... And now I'll read. Okay. From there, I spy on the neighbors. Sexy Flor with her big ass and yellow cotton candy hair. And mean Genoveva, who always looks like she is smelling something bad and pretty Americanized Lydia, who wears her hair in a flip, and La Puerca Vizca, who has two names because she is both a dirty pig, La Puerca, (laughs) and cross-eyed, Vizca, and the big-headed, red-haired Cabeza family. They all go in and out of Don Joe's bodega right next to our building, unaware that I am watching them and that I know what they buy and how much time they spend hanging around talking. Ah, something, huh? And that's the Maria that we don't know on (laughs) Sesame Street. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen. That's the Maria that we don't know. And the memoir is so much not about Sesame Street, yet it is. And for those who have not read it, you will see that so many of the mosaics in the stones of the life of Sonia Manzano led to that moment. I don't want to ruin it, but... Right. And, you know, I I will just say that I, when the book was in Galley and Sonia and I had worked together quite a while on it and it was at my bedside and I thought, I'm going to read this just as fresh as I can, as objectively as I can, as a reader. So, of course, I knew it was going to happen. And I just burst into tears at the (laughs) end, having read it, you know, totally anew. And I came to the conclusion that, again, it's like, Everything that led to this moment, it was almost like some wisp or wind or force from above 
said, here, honey, now you must go out and be Maria on Sesame Street. And that's why the role, I think, resonates so much with so many of us who watched Sonia for over 40 years coming into our living room. I agree. And what was that like being Maria? Well, I think it was the perfect storm, as Andrea uh, just said. Uh, The show was a perfect storm of Mm -hmm. Joe Raposo, Jim Henson, John Stone, and those creators, John Cooney, in time, the Mm -hmm. 60s, and we were going to change the world, and America was idealistic. And and, uh, all of a sudden, people of color were on television for the first time. Never forget the first time I saw Susan and Gordon. I was so thrilled that they there they were. I was at a, at a student union at Carnegie Mellon University, and there on the television set was a very bald James Earl Jones reciting the alphabet. And then they cut to Susan and Bo- Gordon, this beautiful black couple from an inner city street. I said, "Whoa, what is this?" <laughs> and then uh, they wanted Latinos on the show because. There was an uproar about having equal representation, and that's how I got on the show. And I, I loved what they were doing, and I wanted to stay and help them do more. Right, and be part of it. And be part of it. And I, I, I hope I make the point in Becoming Maria that people, uh, it's not only overcoming a difficult childhood to succeed, but it's incorporating the difficult mm-hmm. childhood to mm-hmm. succeed. Excellent. I never mm-hmm. forgot who I was and what I came from when I was on Sesame Street. I always assumed some kid was out there who needed a moment of peace and tranquility and order. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And there I was speaking to them from an environment that they recognized. Yes. And I've gotten wonderful letters since my just, retirement just from Sesame that. Street that just have said. That. I mean, my mother, somebody wrote and said, my mother was schizophrenic, and I, one hour a day I watched Sesame Street, and I made believe you were my mother, or I was Aww. in that environment. Aww. You know, once, I'll, I'll say that Sonia was uh, gracious enough to invite me onto the set, so I went and spent the day, and I don't even know if I ever shared this with you, Sonia, there was a, a take that they were doing over and over and over and again, so we watched this take all day long, which, by the way, I'll just say, when I saw you doing that, Sonia, I thought, that's why she's such a good reviser. She's <laughs> unflappable. She just can do it over yes. and over and keep bringing yes. freshness and uh-huh. light and beauty and yeah. everything to it. And uh, at one point, Sonia, you're doing a, a sketch with a Muppet. And I, I watched the sketch a hundred times. And the, the cameraman turns to me and he says, do you feel it? I said, yes, I feel it. Oh. And, you know, we both knew exactly what we meant. And it was the same feeling that I felt as a little girl and that, as Sonia described, so many of us felt uh, when we watched her on Sesame Street. And that's what she brings to the books that she creates. Thank you, Andrea. Do you feel it? She brings brings that feeling. (laughs) Okay, so Andrea is your publicist. (laughs) And, you know, let me just say also, even amidst, you know, what I I like to call breaking the dishes. You know, Sonia breaks the dishes, so to speak. Yes. In these books. Even amidst (laughs) that, we feel it. And, and we feel the humor and the family and the characters and, and the love that kind of pervades all that. So. And the keen observation, though, of character, of mm-hmm. people in your life. I mean, it's almost like you're watching a movie. It is very cinematic. It. it is very you know, cinematic. I feel that you clung on to them as sort of like your entertainment when there was so little. Yeah. 
yeah. to, but they themselves seem to be creatively surviving <laughs> in one way or another, correct? <laughs> right, right. They you did know. the best. They fumbled along. Yeah. <laughs> well, within high heels. They fumbled along <laughs> in high heels. And, and, you know, flaky skin or whatever right, right. anybody had. But let's back up here a little bit. You were at Carnegie Mellon. You sort of just said that rather casually and coming from the childhood you came from. That and talk a little bit about that in your high school. I mean, these were big, big transitions. Yes, I went to the High School of Performing Arts, known as the Fame School. There was a movie and a TV show based on that school, and it's uh, a specialized New York City school where I, where kids could go for free and study various disciplines. Uh, music, dance, and drama at that time. And I uh, had a teacher. I had a lot of terrible teachers. I, but I know you that. keep referring to the one with the flaky skin. Yes, I know. I just love that. <laughs> and, read and the, the big book. galoshes. How about the big galoshes, too? Yeah. Putting the stuffing the galoshes onto the On the woman's foot. Like, yeah, yeah. I know. They were, yeah. So there were teachers who had psoriasis that were mean. And uh, <laughs> I had to help them on with their boots. Like I was a servant. Oh, but... I also had very good teachers as well, inspiring teachers, teachers who changed my life. And uh, one of them was Miss Shirley Pellman, who took me to see West Side Story in elementary school uh, when I was most depressed. And I didn't realize it because we didn't use the we didn't use the word upset or depressed. I went to see her as an adult and she told me that I was one of the most depressed kids she ever saw. Oh, <laughs> and I remember That's I got home funny. on the subway and I started crying because I didn't see, I didn't think of myself as that. I mean, this was a time when, you know, those words weren't used to describe children like we do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and toxic or stress. stress or stress or anything counselors, like no counselors, no dysfunctional or family. Or dysfunctional. No. Nobody, Nobody had spun those terms around. <laughs> so she was the one. She took me to see West Side Story, and that was an eye-opening experience. And then this other teacher said that I should go to uh, the High School of Performing Arts. And uh, he said, I, of all the kids in the classroom, I wasn't going to go on drugs or get pregnant. And I think this is interesting. I was annoyed at his statement because mm-hmm. I didn't want to be separated from my girlfriends. And I believe that kids mm. have to struggle with the being part of the in with your group. Why should I listen to this guy? He's not my group. But a part of me did want to go to the uh, did want to be yeah. picked. So I struggled with that a little bit, and I kind of you know made believe I didn't care, and and uh, and I part of me didn't because I thought. If I could survive my parents, anything else is gravy. It wasn't as important. Uh If I'm worried about my mother getting battered this evening, do I really worry that much about getting into the High School of Performing Arts? Which is more... It's relative. Relative and uh, nobody's life is at stake about going to Performing Arts. Uh So, but anyway, uh, it was wonderful. I met with middle-class kids. I had never been around middle-class kids before. They knew how to discuss uh, things with their teachers. They would crack the teacher up. I thought the teacher was going to yell at them for cracking us up. But the teacher would laugh along Uh, with the kids. I was shocked at that. 
and because uh, I was used to like being disciplined in the inner city school. And then in the inner city school, also, I was an A student. If I could phone it in. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because so little was expected of me. Uh-huh. When I got into this performing arts, I was like, my grades, you know, yeah. tumbled. And uh, I had to, a hard time catching up. So that made me go to a college that you could get in on an audition because my yes. grades were lousy. But America was on my side. Yeah. It wasn't the cynical America we live in today. Right. It was the late 60s. So we had about three good years here. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We saw the light. <laughs> we but woke up it, and we saw the light and then we're sleeping again. <laughs> but, it, you know, I guess for people who don't, do not live in New York City, it may be tough to understand. It wasn't just a new school environment, but you were going on the subway to a completely different world. From the Bronx to mid, was it Midtown? It was, it was on 46th Street, if you okay. could believe that. It's not there anymore. That school isn't, it's yeah. moved. But on 46th Street, and I thought to myself, just coming downtown every day, how cool is this? Yes. <laughs> did you do your homework on the subway? Oh, yeah. I yeah. did that. Like everybody does their homework on the subway, I did that. But I used to love, I remember Sweet Charity was playing, and I used to see the theater, you know, wonder what was going on right. inside the theaters. Uh, oh, and the little shops always going out of business, remember? Yes, <laughs> yes because there were always shops that said, uh, going out of business sale, Irish linen, yeah. very cheap. <laughs> yes. So I thought, oh, my goodness, I have to get some of this yes. for my mother. And then like four years later, the same store, going yeah. out of business yeah. sale. Well, I realized they're for tourists. They yeah. just yeah. enticing <laughs> tourists to come and think that they have to buy this now. I've been suckered in a few times, I have to admit. <laughs> Myself. Oh, that is that is funny. Well, now your mother. This is an interesting dynamic, an interesting relationship. It starts out you waiting at the window for her to come up from the subway to come home and embrace you, and that's the warmth you feel and the love. And then even that turns south pretty quickly. What happened was I grew up. She was wonderful when you're a little baby. She could give you the Hershey bar treat. Mm -hmm. She would give you the crackling on the stove. She would save that for you. She was warm. Uh, she was loving. She held me and kissed me. But then you get a little older. Mm -hmm. You were like four. <laughs> I see right through you, lady. Well, well, I mean, just, not, not four, but I mean, just, you know, and then you question the stories. But why is it? Why is it? Why is a good woman one who takes abuse? Why does that make you saint-like? Well, you know, because, you know, you suffer a lot and then it's very good. Wait a minute. I don't get this. <laughs> Break it down to me again. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, when you start to sort of think on your own, I think that's where, uh, obviously, yeah. Yeah, that's course. what happens. Of you course. start growing up. I think some mothers are good with babies and not so good when kid, their kids get older. And some mothers are not good with babies, but very good. When the kid is, you know, out there. That's very true. Making that's their own. And that's like, you know, when a shift happens in the life of a child, that's when you do grow up. That's when you become an adult. Yes. And Sonia so aptly describes that shift. It's almost like a, like a fog lifting, like a veil coming up. Yes. And so many of us adult readers, we remember experiencing that. And now it's articulated. 
so clearly. Completely. But in fairness to your mother, I mean, I just thought of your brother being sick with asthma or— Oh, my. <gasps> the things they had to— Oh, to, to, I know. To, to and patience, or I don't know how to pronounce that. What? I speak French. Between your mother, well, ave purissima. Ave Maria purissima. But, you know, just— think this, she had this job, she had had children, she couldn't feed them, and she had, you know, the husband, and my goodness, and on all these nosy neighbors, and so she had quite a lot on her plate. She was so overwhelmed. We, she she never spoke about Puerto Rico hardly. When when I was 14, we decided to go on a trip to Puerto Rico, and I went, oh yeah, those are where my people are from. (laughs) But that was an indication of how overwhelmed they were, making ends meet. Every second. Uh, And sometimes my father, who made good money, by the way, uh, he'd blow it. Mm -hmm. And it was her job to worry about. It wasn't his problem that he blew it on Friday with his friends. It wasn't, you know, sometimes he'd bring it home and sometimes he wouldn't. And she would be the one who would try to stretch the... My mother could make seven sandwiches out of one can of tuna fish. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty great. That's pretty great. It reminds me of Angela's ashes. I mean, that's the story. (laughs) Friday afternoon paycheck. Yeah, Goodbye. (laughs) You never know. Yeah. But it was her responsibility that she took it on. So she was quite overwhelmed with, with... But she, you know, I said to her, why... Why did you have four kids? You know, why didn't you... Yeah. Why did you just stop at me? Right. <laughs> no, but I, but, and she said, I always wanted to have a lot of children because I wanted to have all, all, all that love. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that comes from being an orphan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She and her siblings were very close. And, and that feeling of, of having a f- big family is something she wanted, to, she wanted to recreate come hell or high water, domestic right. abuse aside. Right, she trudged through. Yeah. <laughs> she trudged through. Yeah, she was resilient too in mm-hmm. her way, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we feel such compassion for even the the quote-unquote evil characters, you know. Yes. <laughs> for, for your dad, for your mom, yes. and, you know, in oh, such you know, limiting circumstances and all that. I mean, their own childhoods. You were like an upgrade. Right. <laughs> See, that's how they saw it. Yeah, yeah. Right? They yeah. said, what's the, you know, I wouldn't get these crying jacks. Yeah. I, would, I would like, would like pull my hair out. I can't play me anymore. I'm going to run away. You know, everybody yeah. ran away in television. You know, Timmy would run Fever. away. Yeah, everybody would run away. Like, just like on TV. And, uh, and they'd come in and say, what? What's wrong? You're not an indentured servant. You're right. <laughs> Yeah. You're not like a dog out yeah, of people throwing food yeah. at you. You know, what more do you want? <laughs> right, right. Well, it's, just, it's not funny. I shouldn't laugh, but it's just cute. But all right. So with school, you talk the teacher, you were little. It sounded, I couldn't quite tell about your neighborhood. It sounded like something of a melting pot, but everybody had a slightly different shade color. Right, of skin, didn't they? And they. You mean in uh, junior high school? Well, even elementary school. You talked about the invisible girl. Wasn't that elementary school? Uh, I'm not sure where I brought that up, but um, but it. I I think it's it's very interesting that when I look at class pictures, Mm -hmm. yes, there were people of other colors. But when I remember the time, I only remember the Puerto Rican group I was in. 
And if uh, I was also struck by the audio version of uh, Becoming Maria in that when in the early years, every time I refer to a white person, they have white blonde hair. Yes. Now, what are the possibilities yes, of every I white know. person I ever I met know. having white I blonde know. hair? It really was striking to me. And too. I think yes. it's sort of like, that's how I saw them all yeah. in this one, because I didn't know any personally. I, I you know, mm-hmm. so um, that's a very unsophisticated uh, a view uh, uh, of the world, obviously, because in my, me- they, they didn't all have white blonde hair. They were yeah. just all white, but that's how I categorize yes, them. Right. So I just remember being uh, 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 around uh, Puerto Ricans because we kept to ourselves. We visited, to you know, mm-hmm. uh, with each other. School would have a different agenda. For example, Christmas, we were supposed to wait, hope for snow. But one thing my parents said, oh, please, no snow. We'll never get this jalopy out of here so we can run <laughs> right, around right, on New right. Year's, on Christmas Eve. Yeah, New Bing Year's Crosby Eve. will be showing up soon. You know, <laughs> the singer's coming and, yes. uh, you know, my high heels are not going to make it in the snow. So we were living another reality. <laughs> that was and, um, the that diversity was that was probably around. Not a lot, but some. More, more when we moved to Southern Boulevard. Did you speak Spanish all the time at home? I guess we did, yes. People always ask me. I don't remember having to learn English, ever. It was always, I always knew English and I always knew Spanish. Right. Well, getting back to the colors and the the, uh, melting pot and the invisible girl, you said you had an unsophisticated view of the world. I would say maybe your teacher at one point did as well. Oh, sure. Oh, you're talking about the this woman with the flaky elbows okay, really made an really, impression on you. She certainly did. I might have had a teacher just like her. <laughs> she was a fourth grade teacher. She really hated us. Oh, okay. She really hated us. And uh, there was something called a Brotherhood Week. And there was she, this is the opportunity she took. And it, I remember the class was mostly Puerto Rican. It was Brotherhood Week. And she said to us, there's white people, black people, and yellow people. Now, here we're all Puerto Ricans, right? And we come in all shades. And uh, one kid raised his hand and said, uh, what about brown people? Aren't there brown people? And she says, no, there's no (laughs) such thing as brown people. (laughs) She was just a piece of work. And And then she told us at some point, there's rich people, poor people, and middle class people. Oh, yes. So I thought that we were middle class. Because to me, poor meant like Calcutta, like people around in the street with Uh open sores, you know, that kind Uh of stuff. And and then she said, no. I said, we're middle class, right? And she says, no, all of you here in this school (laughs) are definitely poor. (laughs) Now, she, this was a, a bad teacher who was in an inner city school who probably wasn't wanted an upgrade to a middle-class school and couldn't get it yeah. for some reason. Okay. So they would put her in this to teach us. But I remember my mother's feelings were hurt when I related that conversation uh, to her. She said, we're doing all right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Screw her. Were there ever any parent-teacher conferences? There were. My mother went to every single one, and she went to every <gasps> single show I was in. Oh. Mm-hmm. Every. Wonderful. I remember I played Venus once, the planet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was surprised by that. <laughs> she would come 
to, <laughs> the planet. you know. What did you say? <laughs> I'd say, my name is Venus. I live 4 billion, 700, whatever the correct uh, amount of uh, miles is yeah. from the earth. And I, you know, and then I had to sort of That's great. relate the uh, facts and figures of the planet Venus. <laughs> I'm sure your mom was in the audience you know, elbowing the other moms. That's my girl. <laughs> yeah, she was there. She that's was my there. Venus. Yes. Oh, I love it. Did yeah. you wear like a circle? Oh, yeah, we're a big circle planet. It was lavender. That's adorable. Yeah. <laughs> and I had a, a I had a mirror. I was supposed to look into and primp. Oh my and gosh, Sonia. Of they, course. Okay. <laughs> of so course. they did a few good the Venus things up there. <laughs> they did right by you. <laughs> um, all right, well, I think I've asked you a lot of questions here. Maybe Andrea wants to ask a question. Well, uh, I want to say, Sonia, how was it recording the audio? That's different than writing. Yes, it was. It's an amazing audio, by the way. Same reaction for me, listening to it <laughs> anew. Just neat. I got, it got me, you know? Neat. Well, aside from this, the realization of how I was, you know, everybody was white blonde. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, there was a moment that I broke down and I couldn't go on. It was so upsetting. And it was a moment that... In the book, I sort of were towards the end of the book when I'm assessing my mother and I'm saying, how could this be and how could this be? And I was just absolutely emotionally spent. I started crying. They had to take a break. It was a and it, it makes me think that the things that happen to you, you never really forget them. You never you never, ever get over it. But they're like, you know, when you have a splinter inside you mm -hmm. and it doesn't hurt anymore because it's in there. Yes. But then all of a sudden you move a certain way and it gets you. <laughs> That's how these feelings are. Mm -hmm. And you kind of get by them and you, but they never leave you. And I, and it came up while I was, you know, reading probably that what I thought was the most unemotional part of the book. There's kind of a wrapping it up and let's do it. And so it was cathartic. Gosh, you keep going through these things. Now you talk about there's just one other, there is one other thing I thought about when you when your teacher suggested that your parents should read to you at home and you came home and your mom you know you didn't have any books I can't get buy you books but she told you stories about her childhood Right right well Puerto you know Rico. you're putting it very like she said it very nicely what right. she said was don't I have enough to do I have to read you books <laughs> We don't have any books. <laughs> and then, I'm sorry, dear. <laughs> and then the teacher said, well, she could tell you stories. I actually, when I give speeches, I give that advice to parents. Mm -hmm. So then she would tell me these terrible stories about her childhood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. And you're like, all right, enough. <laughs> okay, enough of these. Let's uh, try to find some fiction here. But I, I love the stories. I yeah, and she loved yeah, the stories, too. And sure. she loved telling me uh, the, the wonderful stories. Now, for your story, where does your story go from here? Well, uh, I'm going to continue to write. It's it's uh, something I never thought I would do because we never had pencils or paper in my house or or anything uh -huh. like that or or books as I as we just mentioned. And writing was something that intellectuals did, not something that people like us did. It was a, it wasn't uh, introduced to me. So this is an exciting new area for me from performing and, and being on Sesame Street. So I, I hope to, to write more and, and uh, 
more works of fiction and maybe in the future a continuation of the memoir, which will have to do with love and mental illness. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yes, she's Sonia in. has some wonderful Next things week. coming. Great. Sonia, well, we can't wait. And it's been such an honor to talk with you today. Thank you. And with Andrea. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Here's a clip from the audio edition of Becoming Maria, narrated by Sonia herself. Back on the train, the newness of camp and those people and the knish makes me bold enough to ask her a question. Hey, Audia, what does that say? What? I point to all the ads in the train. All that up there on the signs. What does it all say? But she has grown tired of taking care of two little kids, I think, because she switches. Oh, why don't you try reading them yourself? Can't you read yet? Christ. Now this idea makes me stop. I have only read Dick and Jane books out loud in school with the rest of the class, the teacher insisting we all stay on the same page. I always wanted to read on to see what Dick and Jane did next, but was afraid to peek until the teacher said it was okay. So I'd count the window panes or watch the leaves switching around outside until everyone in the class caught up with me. Now, Aurea is telling me to read all by myself. I look at the letters in the signs, and in one split second, the words fall into place, and I am reading. I'm reading. I read, for a smooth taste, smoke Chesterfield cigarettes. Don't eat that cake. Light up instead. Most doctors agree Bayer aspirin will make your headache go away. Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. I focus on a picture of three pretty girls, Arlene Singer, Brooklyn, Danette DiNapoli, Manhattan, Kersey Ann O'Reilly, the Bronx. Vote for Miss Rheingold Beer today. Hurry up. We have gotten to our stop. What's the matter with you? But I don't say anything to Audia. I can read, and I don't want anyone to know about my secret weapon. And suddenly, I can't wait for summer to end and second grade to begin. Thank you for joining us and for sharing in our mission at Scholastic, where we believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world of possible. Special thanks to producer Megan K. Safer, sound mixer and editor Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberle.